clubhouse. This is Mita Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're talking about episode 207 of The Alienist Angel of Darkness season. Last exit to Brooklyn. Teleplay for this episode was by Tom Smuts and Amy Burke. It was directed by David Caffrey. Well, lady, we were both kind of right. So the baby (laughs) was literally stolen, but... Also, a specific uh, head nod was made to the fact that she mourned the baby as if it had died. So mm-hmm. I give us both hat tips for yes. our take on what happened to uh, to Libby's baby. So pats on the back for both of us. Look at that. Uh, this was a crazy episode. It uh, it had no breastfeeding in it for the first time in a couple weeks, but had a sexual awakening for Laszlo and had a slit throat. We don't get, you know, we haven't had a lot of good slit throats on the show lately. Oh, complete so. with the gurgling. Ugh. Oh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was definitely I mean, he was you know, Doyle's been a feature on the show since season one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, kind of a major death, you know, not obviously not a core cast member, but a significant character death. Surprising so, nonetheless. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I guess really not. I mean, it wasn't surprising. Well, someone had to go. As, I mean, Well, she's a, I mean, she is a practiced killer. She has murdered a ton of people. So bad on Doyle for letting his misogyny show and assuming he could just turn his back on her just because she's on her knees with her hands behind her back. Motherfucker, cuff her. Don't they have, they didn't have handcuffs in 1897, you know? But, sure uh, they did, but yeah, no. Yeah, it was totally because, got the better of him. Right. I mean, she was like, you know, a little slight woman, you know, uh, you know, and hard to, you know, uh, he obviously didn't take her seriously and he paid the ultimate price, which. And under the 27 layers of clothing, she obviously had a weapon. Yeah. Surprising. Yeah, I, mean, any, Surprising. Any, I mean, Doyle should have known better. He saw the crime scene with the matron, you know, you know so uh, you, you would think he would have appreciated the amount of blood that Libby is able to generate. But yeah, I mean, his patriarchy got him in the end. I, I, there were some bright spots for Doyle this season, but uh, overall, I mean, he was as big a piece of shit, really, as uh, as Burns, and, and represented all that was bad about the, the men in power at this time. So I don't really feel terribly, but uh, yeah, I'm still kind of Team Libby, I gotta say. I don't know. <laughs> Although this was uh, this is one instance where I am glad that we're getting the back-to-back episodes because the cliffhanger for this would have been too much for me to wait a whole nother week for. I have no nails left after biting them down after this episode. And so much happened. So much happened in such a short amount of time in this episode, I feel. It, it did feel like a really short episode. There was, you know, a lot happened, but also not a lot happened either. You know, I, mm-hmm. They didn't go a lot of places. All of the action took place in just a very couple of uh, specific settings. So, so let's start with Libby. Now, having seen it played out, do you think she came to Brooklyn to find her daughter? Which was a question that was unanswered. Laszlo didn't think so. The mother was pretty sure she didn't know that Libby didn't know where Clara, the baby, was or had grown up. 
do you think that's true? Or do you think she came to Brooklyn just because Manhattan was closed off to her and it was, you know, somewhat familiar having having grown up in Brooklyn? I don't think she knew that Clara was alive. I don't think she did at all because of how badly she freaked out when she saw the journal article that had the exclusive with um, with Clara, with her mother in the apartment, all set up. She freaked the fuck out. So I don't think for a second that she actually believed that Clara was alive. I don't think she had anything to go on. We said that she mourned this baby. She knew the baby was stolen from her, but I don't think she had any wherewithal to find this baby. I agree. I don't think she knew where the baby was. I think in hindsight, she may have come to Brooklyn to find her mother or at some point would have confronted her mother, whether it was about what happened to her baby or just out of desperation and nowhere to turn. And and obviously the mother must have been thinking it too. Mallory, I believe her name was, Mallory Hunter. Yep. Uh, Mallory. Because when Sarah comes a knocking... You know, she says, Sarah and the team come knocking, you know, her words are, I read the papers, I've been expecting you. So if Mallory was expecting a visit from the police about Elsbeth, then I think it stands to reason that Libby would have gone to pay her mother a visit at some point. Plus, it seemed like she must have been staying there pretty close. I mean, she got over there. Her and Gugu got over to the mother's brownstone pretty fast. So, yeah, I, I think at some point she might have paid her a visit. For what reason? Not really sure. Agree. So do we want to hazard a guess at Clara's father? Also, does Libby's pregnancy play any part, do you think, in Mr. Hunter's suicide that made the papers Sergeant Kelly remembered graphically? Do you have any insight into who the father could be and if the pregnancy played a part? Well, I mean, the father obviously was a man of means, presumably Mr. Hunter, but I, I don't think he was any kind of famous figure. I think it's possible the pregnancy was maybe a cause, uh, maybe the shame spiral from his, who must have been a very young uh, daughter. I mean, she had to have been, what, 15, 16 tops when she had uh, baby Clara, based on what her kind of current age now is in the show and how old Clara is. I put Clara at eight, nine years old. Same. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're talking she must have been 15, 16, based on how they've played Libby age-wise. So... The shame of that and and learning that they were a family of means, which also fills in a blank that you and I discussed last week. I thought I, I wasn't surprised. We, I had kind of mentioned that I thought this was where it was going to go, that she had grown up around wealth. She was comfortable with that world. And so the idea of knowing the Vanderbilt baby wasn't completely out of her realm or her comfortable zone. But all of that being said, I, I think the maybe the shame of his daughter's pregnancy maybe is what drove him to suicide. I don't know if we're going to get an answer to that. I don't think he was the father. I didn't, I didn't pick up any kind of weird dad molestation vibe on that. But I, I think maybe the, the shame of that seems to make more sense than he was just a country mouse who couldn't hack it in the city, which is kind of what uh, Mallory, the mother, places at his feet. If we didn't have the narrative with Mallory and Laszlo in the apartment, I would have thought there would have been some shenanigans with her father um, in terms of the baby, but Mallory obviously did all of the damage to Libby from what we saw. I do wholeheartedly agree that Libby's pregnancy was the catalyst for the suicide. What we heard from Mallory about growing up with the finest families in Brooklyn near Prospect Park. They spent a year in Paris with her studying dance. She was a good girl, a clever girl. You wouldn't think that Libby would be someone who would get pregnant. And I agree, she had to be about 15 or 16 because we pegged her as under 25 
And that girl, Clara, is about eight or nine years old. So, yeah, I do agree that there's a, a pregnancy. Uh, the pregnancy probably played a large part in the suicide. I don't think it was the the ruse that we were given that Mallory has no idea. If if you live with somebody who suffers from depression, from mental ailments that would drive them to suicide, there are warning signs. So she had to know something. So I think she's covering up the fact that it was the pregnancy. Yeah, I agree. I think Mallory was playing a little too dumb for someone clearly as sophisticated as she is and and was. And and Lazlo really takes her to task about it. But I don't want to get to Lazlo yet, though, because I don't think we're done with I don't think we're done with Libby, the saga of Libby uh, Hunter here yet or Libby Hatch, you know, nay, Elsbeth. Elsbeth is kind of a cool name. Anyway, uh, let's talk about Libby and Gugu, the the classic American love story. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I said last episode, and, and I said it kind of serious, and I said it with a joking tone, but in, in a way that, that had some truth to it, Gugu is an oddly devoted boyfriend here. I no longer think he is the father of the baby, of, of Clara, which I had kind of assumed he was. I, because I, I didn't know how long ago we were talking about that she had had a baby. Nine years just seems too long for him to have been the father. Maybe. I, I don't know that that really is even the point. The fact is, he sticks by her side here. He has ample opportunity with the money being tossed around to turn on her, to steal the baby. He does take the baby at one point to sell the baby, to start a new life. He has a lot of chances here to betray her and and her delusional mind. And right or wrong, I give him a lot of credit for sticking by her side. He sees what Burns and his goon squad does to Ding Dong. You know, he calls in the extra collection round so he has more cash on hand so him and him and Libby can get away on the boat. He comes back to the apartment. He apologizes. He takes an ass whooping from her. I think she even gets him in the balls at one point, you know, and he and he takes all of that knowing kind of he was in the wrong for having stolen the baby and then says... This is our boy. Like, he comes around to her side. I'm not saying he is a good guy. I am not saying he is even right maybe in encouraging her delusions. But there is a point of view here where Gugu is pretty good boyfriend insofar as being supportive of his woman, right or wrong. When I saw the thumbnail, actually, for this episode, it, it was Gugu, and I could kind of tell from the profile it was Ding Dong. So I was like, oh, here, come back the, the dusters a little bit more in the forefront. Yeah, so he did have a, a large part to play here because he, he did look like he was going to undermine her, betray her, he took the baby, he was going to, you know, take him to, to Vanderbilt, knowing that the, he's going to end up like the rest of them. So he that's the realist in him. He was planning for their escape. He wanted to you know, get the baby. He had a plan, but then, you know, love and breast milk got the better of him, I think. So he, he turned back and he came back to Libby. Yeah. That ass whooping that she gave him, he kind of deserved it. God, I can't believe I'm sympathizing with Libby here. What is wrong with me? But, you know, she says something to him that I was really taken by. She says, you're just like the rest of them. And that for me was like a knife in the heart. Like that, it, that was the manifestation of all of the pain that she'd been feeling up until that point. Like that was it articulated in words for me. The fact that he came back shows his dedication to her. He came back to be a family. It's our boy. And he just couldn't do it. He, he, he's just, he's hook, line, and sinker for, for Team Libby over here. He really is. And, and kind of as an extension of that, I'm surprised at the loyalty that Ding Dong shows him. Ding Dong kind of is his guy 
to Burns, right? He says when Burns has taken him to task inside of Cyrus's place, that Gugu don't tell me shit and, you know, but does is he reasonable? And he says every man's got his price. But that looks like the exact kind of stack of cash that Burns gives him is what he turns over to Gugu. You know, it didn't look like he skimmed any off of it. He he takes the punch in the nose and Gugu threatens, you know, this is what loyalty looks like. You don't want to see betrayal, which, you know, that's an interesting way to encourage your employees breaking their nose. But Ding Dong has a lot of opportunities here to betray Gugu and doesn't. And in fact, hands over all that cash on top of taking a beating and still, you know, shows up for the meeting with Burns and stuff. I'm awestruck at the kind of loyalty that these these goons, these mass murderer, body chopping lunatics are showing, you know, Gugu to Libby and, and Ding Dong to Gugu. Maybe some of it's at a fair with Ding Dong, but still, that's kind of going above and beyond for your employer. And... For, for Gugu, going kind of above and beyond, you know, for Libby. And he gets her that nice little shawl, you know, which sadly she gives away, you know, to, to the other redhead girl to use as like a mole spy. The uh, stunt double. These, yeah, I mean, but that's pretty smart thinking, right? I mean, these two are, I've been calling them the natural born killers, but they really do have a Bonnie and Clyde kind of vibe to them. That's an intelligent, like. I, Libby, I was going to say, they're very intelligent. Say what you want about Libby. She is not a hayseed. She is not a rube. She is not a, a broken woman, like little girl kind of thing. You know, the way, the way the lying in nurses were all portrayed in Colleen with her rage issues and, you know, kind of emotionally immature. Libby is wicked smart and has an education behind her and Gugu has enough street smarts, if not formal education, to be a formidable match for her. Sending in a body double with the bullet saying there's one for all of you, that's some fucking wicked cold-blooded shit that I was totally into. I, 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 I am kind of team psycho guys here especially when you put them up against burns and doyle yeah i'm definitely i think on libby and gugu's side here not that i want them to steal the baby you know i I, ideally they would give back the vanderbilt baby they would get clara and they would just go off and somehow i feel like maybe they would be okay with that i really think libby would chill if she had her daughter back she has been so consistently devoted to the idea of my baby was stolen, so all I'm doing is in reaction to my baby being stolen, and I just want my baby back. And I'm going to continue raising hell in New York until that happens. Makes me feel like, maybe with some medication, she would really kind of settle down if she just had her own daughter back. Maybe not. I don't know, because now her daughter is eight years removed from what she remembers. I, I don't think that you can undo all of the abandonment issues that she's had to deal with since Clara was taken from her. So I do think she would do better, but I just don't know if she would be on the straight and narrow when it came to to being able to raise Clara in a sane sort of way. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just being <laughs> a little uh, rose-colored, uh, blood-splattered glasses here. But in my head, I'd like to think so. Let's switch to the end of the episode when she shows up in Sarah's office, which... As soon as you heard a noise in Sarah's, as soon as you saw Sarah alone, I mean, God, she calls out John's name. How fast do you think John got from his townhouse down to your, down up to your office, Sarah, that you think he was here? Obviously it was her coming to get you. You have, you've decided to be alone in your office in the dead of night after stealing her daughter. And by the way, what bad optics walking out with Burns and all those goon cops? What bad optics walking out at the same time when, when she and Laszlo and John walk out with Clara and get into the carriage right after the cops walk out? 
even I was like, man, you look so complicit in all of this bullshit that Burns has put together here, this nonsense show, this obvious, like, trap that was set for you. Even I was shaking my head that Sarah would be caught dead walking out at the same time as the cops. Yeah, it kind um, of felt like an amateur move on Sarah's part. Yeah, right? I mean, you know she's in the neighborhood. She had the smart. You just saw she sent in a body double. You don't think she's watching the door from wherever she is? Obviously, she's watching the door. Why would you walk out and, and be guilty by association with these cops? Which clearly is the take that Libby has. After she's very calmly slits Doyle's throat, she heads on over to Sarah's office because they need to have a conversation. This was some tension-filled stuff here because we are getting to the end of the season. There's no guarantee of a season three on the show. It's kind of an all bets are off kind of thing when you get to the second, uh, you know, the penultimate or the se- or the you know final episode of the season. What did you think was going to happen here? What did you think of Libby having the smarts to understand that she'd be charred up faster than Martha Knapp? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, she understands, like, the electric chair waits for her based on everything she's done. This This really raised my blood pressure. With regard to Libby... She had insight into what was right and what was wrong. And within the span of a sentence, she went from being very upset about Doyle, I didn't even know his name, to saying he stained my shirt. Oh, I didn't. Oh, see, I when she says I didn't know his name because Sarah asked in a very personal way because she had actually a couple of nice moments with Doyle after she shuts him down, getting Isabel freed from the paddy wagon. I feel like Doyle kind of came around on Sarah. So I think she's asking really sincerely. I, I took I took Libby's response there. I didn't know his name. Kind of like, bitch, I didn't give a shit who it was. Like, he was staying between me and my baby, so I slit his fucking throat. Uh, yeah, I didn't think there was any remorse there. I think she was more like, that's a detail that is not important at this very junction. Like, she was she like she like was almost offended that Sarah would interrupt her to ask if it was Doyle versus some other Irish cop. So... <laughs> I don't know. I got a little bit of a different take from that. I it, I don't know. It, it just seemed that she had this moment and we might be reading the emotions differently. But for me, it looked like she like I didn't even like she seemed to be crying. I didn't even know his name. And then like, fuck her, stay in my shirt. So um, yeah. but the fact that she had insight into they would char me up faster than Martha Knapp. That gave me a moment to be like, oh, so she does know what she's doing. I come back to that primal fear movie with Richard Gere from like the late nineties where the kid in it is um, suffering from multiple personality syndrome and has moments of, of blackout of, of not being able to know right from wrong when it's the other personality. So the fact that she said that tells me she's aware that what she's doing is wrong. So that makes her clever. It makes her not insane. It makes her have insight into her actions. So, you know, having insight is a very important part of having a mental illness and being able to discern right from wrong so that you can start to make the better choices, typically with medication, but uh, that doesn't exist in 1897. So, yeah, so I, I just, I found it very interesting that she said that she would be charred up faster than poor Martha Knapp. That gave me chills because to me, she knew exactly what she was doing this whole time. And then when Sarah says, you know, Mr. Vanderbilt, Sarah spends a lot of this episode throwing around the weight of Vanderbilt and the things he can do uh, and the strings he can pull. And she tries it here with Sarah, with with Libby, when she says, if you just return the baby, I can, you know, I think Mr. Vanderbilt can reunite you with your daughter. 
you know, and Libby kind of shuts her down. She's like, we already got offered money from Vanderbilt. We turned that down. We didn't like, fall for that. Yeah. Like Libby, like she, she has, you know, she has a, a pros and cons list on everything she's done here. And I think mostly, maybe not fully, because I think she probably spent some, spent some time talking to the voices inside her head. Um, but I think a lot of the time is pretty lucid and pretty very much aware of what she's doing. My take was not that she had remorse over Doyle. It was more about what Doyle had said. Because remember, Doyle tells her, maybe she's mute, or maybe she's stupid in her head, or off in her head like her mother. You know, like she, he's got that, that real... That wasn't bad. Mike, that, that wasn't bad. That real stiff, like, 1800s Irish accent you get in movies and TV shows. Oh, he sounds like a fresh-off-the-boat Dublin. Dublin. Yeah. I, just, I just had potatoes three times a day. Anyway, um, so I think it's more, I think the emotion she's showing there and where she's losing her cool a little bit is the idea that Clara is maybe off. I think that's the, the phrase or the phrasing that she uses because she's asking Sarah, she's almost pleading with Sarah because Sarah has spent time with Clara to, to tell her about her baby. Is she, is she off? Is she broken kind of like me? The officer said, you know, before I slid his throat, the officer said that there may be something wrong with her. I think that's where her emotion was coming from. I don't think she gave a shit about Doyle in one way or another. I think it was just another body, really. I think it was the germ that he had planted in her head that there may be something wrong with Clara. That was what was really getting to her in that scene. Let's stay with Sarah, though, before we get to Laszlo and his amazing sexual adventures. The episode starts with Sarah and John going to Brooklyn and, and getting a taste of the Brooklyn side of the New York Metropolitan Police Force at this time. What did you think of Sergeant Kelly as compared to the treatment and the way that the New York, the Manhattan police behave? Were, were you impressed at the Sergeant Kelly's general demeanor towards Sarah? I think 100% that he saw the journal article, her reputation preceded her, and he was impressed. I think he was impressed that this woman was standing in front of him and coming to see him. And he, he greets her as if he's known her all his life. I just thought it was funny that he addressed John as a footman. But the fact that she got such respect off the bat from somebody within the police department for the time, for her stature, it made me like Sergeant Kelly a whole lot. And, uh, you know, the fact that he was able to deliver the goods for her, you know, made me feel that they weren't going to give her the runaround that I feel that she would have gotten in Manhattan. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think with Burns and his I think Burns' sphere of influence is very much limited to Manhattan. The city of New York at this point is still the Bronx and Manhattan. Brooklyn uh, in 1887 was still its own city. That being said, there was a consolidated police bill passed, I think, in like 1856, something where somewhere in about the 1850s, where there was one unified police force created for the greater metropolitan area. And it replaced what had been the municipal police force. It created the metropolitan police force. And so the Brooklyn police were absorbed into the Manhattan police into the New York police, but there was still a culture difference because like I said, Brooklyn was still its own city at that point. It wasn't until January 1st, 1898 that the city was officially consolidated into the New York city that we know today of the five boroughs and five counties. So th I did not know that. Yeah, that yes. is fascinating. Yeah. So there, there's a, I think the, the, uh, the treatment we see at Sergeant Kelly is a very specific choice that the show is making the, the show that the police here in Brooklyn are, they're maybe still not terribly clean and, and, and have their own issues, but they are not under the thumb in the same way and corrupt in the same way as the 
Manhattan police are who are very much under Burns' thumb. You know, that's not, that's not to say that they're not beating the shit out of people in the street left and right like we've seen Burns and his goon squad do, like we saw them do in this episode. But they're, they're, I think it was a very intentional uh, choice to show Sergeant Kelly treating her with respect because he, he doesn't necessarily live under fear or the compulsion and control of Burns like a Doyle would have. So uh, I thought it was a nice little detail. Yeah, so yeah, we're a couple of months away from the unified city of New York at this point. Uh, soon, I mean, if there was to be another season of The Alienist, it would be the consolidated, you know, greater city of New York. So the city of New York at this point is New York and the Bronx. Brooklyn was its own city. And then Queens and Staten Island were not part of anything. They were like their own towns and villages. So. Anyway, but I agree with you. I think I think Sergeant Kelly treated her with respect that she would have never have gotten in Manhattan. And so I was happy with that. I was glad to see that someone giving her the respect and just another way of showing that the Hearst expose on her really kind of backfired. I think it, it really did, for the people who are not biased, it really did seem to elevate her her stature and her position. So Sergeant Kelly, you know, he you know, he's the one who really kind of is exposition fairy here, right? He tells us about them being a family of means from Prospect Park. The suicide, it was high profile. The girl, you would never think she would grow up to be a murderer. She was like a real slight, you know, shy, a dutiful girl, you know. So they go and see Mallory Hunter. Later, Sarah is talking about Mallory Hunter to Laszlo. And she is kind of drawing parallels here. Do you think she was talking more about herself or do you think she was really just talking about Mallory Hunter or, or both about, she was talking about both of them and women of the time when she was talking about the idea of having a child and being a woman's purpose. Sarah's in an interesting position this season being kind of an old spinster, the way people are treating her, not married, not having kids. Even John, you know, at his, at his engagement party, the first thing he throws out to her when he's tearing her down is that she is childless at this point. Uh, so is she talking in this scene, is she talking really about Valerie Hunter or is she talking about herself, you think? I think this is about her and her seeing what could potentially be if she were to choose that path. So I think she's of the mindset that she is not going to be someone who has children. And if she were to give in to societal pressure, that this could be her future. So I think that this was more of a narrative on on her played out through Mallory Hunter. I, I don't think that, that this was really about Mallory Hunter. This was about her drawing parallels and you know, Laszlo can see Sarah in, in a way that other people can't. So she's confiding in him kind of about John when she says she doesn't want to talk about it, but she doesn't put him off when he says that he already knows what it's about. So, Oh, when he says, when he says, <laughs> you know, what did make any difference if I told you that I already knew what it was about? You know, I, I don't, know, I I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, it was, so, it was just, a, it was like a sweet friend moment. He was like, you don't have to tell me. I already, I, I, I already, already know. know. Yeah. Uh, uh, hello, alienist, uh, Laszlo Chrysler. Nice to meet you. Did you um, not just yeah. see the scene back with Mallory when I, you know, broadcast everything that happened in her head? So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was, it was a real sweet friend moment. I it really was, the, but the way it, he, I just, he treated her. Yeah. But I just feel that that was how, she was conveying to him that this she's basically resigned herself that there there are certain choices that she's made in her life that are going to affect her and the fact that she saw what her life could become because not everybody's cut out to have kids not everybody is meant to have kids and it's fine and there are people who have kids that shouldn't have kids and I guess Mallory Hunter is one of those people but yeah so I, I just feel that this was about Sarah thinly veiled as about Mallory Hunter well I was more interested the, the feeling that Mallory Hunter had a kid 
because of the pressure to have a kid that it was a woman's purpose. That whole conversation really rang true because I, I feel like even 123 years later, I don't know that that is so much different. A guy can get to his 40s and not have kids and no one really blinks an eye. You have a woman get to even their mid-30s, God, their 40s, and not have a kid. I feel like it's still a conversation of what is wrong with them that they don't have children? I feel like that's still a stigma that women deal with. It 100% is. I was told. Isn't that crazy? I was Isn't told crazy? At, on my 27th birthday, why didn't we have any children? My husband and I, why didn't we have any children? We already been married a couple of years at that point. And my mother-in-law, who I love to death, she goes, you know, I had all three of my kids by the time I was 27. I just looked at her and I was just like, well, that's not in my plan. So I was 27 and I was already getting questions about why I didn't have a child. And no. I wasn't, I was 35 by the time I finally did have a child. So you can imagine the conversations that I had to endure to that point. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I, I run across people all the time and I, I see them go through this and it still shocks me that I don't know, I don't know what it is about as a society that we still feel like we have any right to judge people, whether you have kids too young or too old. Like, I, I don't know that, I mean, just mind your own fucking business. People are just going to do what they're going to do. And Jesus, life is hard enough. Don't go, you know, wading into other people's business. I guess that's how I feel. Let, let's skip ahead. Sarah, before we before we jump ahead, there was something that Sarah said to Laszlo about that conversation that we have been touching on, I think, just about every single episode where she talks about Mallory lacking empathy. And we have hit on this theme so much that the fact that they said it, I was just like doing a happy dance. I'm like, yay, go us for identifying that as a trait that seems to be lacking or is overemphasized in others. So it's just it was just another neat tie into the themes that we've been seeing. Yeah, I mean, Lazo has a great come to Jesus moment when it comes to empathy and and hands-on experience versus book smarts uh, in this episode as well. So the idea of of empathy and and experience and how we act and how we interact with the world and other people is has definitely been a theme of this season. So it was nice to hear it kind of get announced, you know, get a, an explicit shout out tonight. So when Sarah confronts Burns about using Clara and you know he places that story in the journal. Burns has a pretty basic statement because it's almost immediate that we hear that she's been spotted in the neighborhood. And Burns tells Sarah, you know, the results will out. Essentially, the ends justify the means. Do you think that's fair in this case? Does he have a point? No. That's, it, it's horrible to think that you can use a child to lure a cold-blooded killer who has gone on a rampage in the last several days to lure this person out in, in hopes to catch her. We saw what she did to Doyle. She dispatched him very, very quickly. She's a very capable person that they are underestimating, in my opinion. And the fact that they're using an eight-year-old child to do this is going to scar the child because this child has been through the ringer. I don't know at what age she was taken by the Children's Day Society, but she's had her life upended. And to bring her back and to confuse the shit out of an eight or nine-year-old child. I have a seven-year-old child, and I can't even imagine the emotional roller coaster that this would put somebody in that position through. So this is one of those cases where the ends to me does not justify the means. This is not where the results will out because this is not where the results and the process equal each other. You get a result, but the process in which you got there is damaging in a whole new level to so many people. So Bitsy has plans with Lucius, but she tells Sarah that she's definitely- Squeeze! I know! I was just like, oh, which she said earlier that she wanted to go walking with him. Um, but so she's got plans. She's going to cancel it to stay with Sarah because it's it's been a heady day. And 
Bitsy just kind of turns to Sarah and says, you know, if you love John, if you love him, you need to tell him because there's going to come a time when it's too late. I don't know about you, but for me, there was this huge sense of foreboding and it was getting toward the, it was getting to the witching hour of the episode. So I don't know. What did you think about Oh, yeah. That it was a feel. huge, it was a foreshadower of doom, right? I mean, we knew Libby was on the loose. It, night has fallen. Nothing good in the show ever happens at nighttime. And Sarah is walking to her office and, and explicitly demanding to be alone in the scene. Uh, yeah, it was a total harbinger of doom. It was, it was, oh boy, oh boy. You know, like if this was at like the third episode of the season, you know, my ass wouldn't have been as clenched. But yeah, you're, <laughs> you're talking, you're talking just a few minutes left in the penultimate episode of a of a really graphic season. Yeah, I, something bad, bad, bad was going to happen. Uh, by the way, kudos to you on your bitsy impression without even actually trying to do a bitsy impression. There is a, just a genuine kind of inflection there that is definitely shared. I. Uh, I, Bitsy is my Bitsy. spirit animal, okay? I, I identify with her. I have, yeah, on many the, levels. I mean, listen, the, the New York genes, uh, you know, accentual genes run strong in women, apparently. You can there's... take the girl out of Queens, but you can't take Queens out of the girl. Uh, for sure. For sure. Uh, I didn't even realize I did that, so thanks for calling me out on it. Well, <laughs> when you listen back to it, you would hear it, so this way you'll be prepared for it. Uh, wait, if you love John... You've got to tell him because there's going to be a time, Sarah, when it's too late. I don't <laughs> say know, Sarah, like do I? I say Sarah. Uh, okay, anyway. But okay, so so she's in her office and and she has this phone call with John, right? Where John is acting all patriarchy with her about, oh, I expected you back from Chrysler's, you know, so soon. Blah blah blah. Dude, dude you're supposed to be at Delmonico's. Fuck. You're even, so mean to him. They're already ordering your vichyssoise, bitch. Go get over to Delmonico's. Put on Extra your big boy cold. pants. Get, get, get on your big boy pants and go to Delmonico's and, you know, pick your lots, your draws for the summer house in Newport. Anyway, she tells John that she was wonderful about, you know, she thought their time together was wonderful. And, and it's a really vulnerable moment for Sarah. One of the few vulnerable moments she really lets herself have. Do you think that that's as big of a yes as John is going to get from her? Because he's demanding on the phone. He's kind of he's kind of like, you need to tell me or else I'm going to make a decision for the two of us. And she gives him that. But is that the best he can hope for from her? I don't think she's ever going to come outright and just say it. But she's, she basically says it when she says that she's got a hard time expressing herself. And what we see on our end of what we can see about Sarah is emotion. I mean, like raw, true emotion. And she's tearing up. I don't think we've seen this level of emotion. And her voice is betraying her as well. But I think he needs to hear it. I think he's he's in the mindset that he needs to hear it. And I think that's part of the reason why he showed up at the office to have out this conversation further. And thankfully, he came when he did and he did not go get his cold bishy swap. What do you think she was calling him back to tell him, right? Because he gets into the, the carriage and then he has it stopped, but we see his phone is ringing. She is calling him. She has picked up the phone to call him. What do you think she was calling to tell him? Because remember, he hangs up the phone saying that he's going to make the decision for the both of them. And she doesn't say anything, but then she calls him back. What If you had money, what do you think her guess would be that she was going to say to him? I think she was contemplating what she hadn't said to him and what she had said in terms of not being able to express and thinking about what Bitsy said. I think she was probably going to tell him that, yeah, this was a yes. That she knew he needed to hear it from her. So I think that that was the phone call because there's no other reason for her to call him. In my mind, there's no other reason for her to reach out and say anything else at that point. 
unless it was a definitive no, which I don't think that that was going to be because she was very emotional. I don't think she calls him back for a definitive no. I agree. I think she calls him back for a definitive somewhere, yes, I think. For, for somewhere from a tacit yes to an, to a definitive yes. I think it was the right. equivalent of like a late, like late night, like, hey, what's up? What you doing? <laughs> yeah. Let's stay on John because obviously we know his life is kind of in the balance as the episode ends. But before that, earlier in the episode, John is continuing to have his uh, penis stuck between his legs and not be able to man up to Violet or whatnot because he doesn't know what what's going to happen with Sarah really. So he, I yeah, think she made of, it like super weird post, you know, sex for them. So yeah, so I think I think a lot of his hesitancy with Violet. One, I don't think he is of the type to naturally want to have that conversation with Violet anyway. But also, I don't think he's willing to torch his entire life and social standing if Sarah is going to turn him down again. But I was a little surprised, and I want your take on this. Hurst in this episode kind of switches track, right? So previously, he had kind of been threatening to John about, you know, it better be a story you're chasing. Kind of innuendoing, like, you know, don't be fucking around on my daughter here, my... My goddaughter. My goddaughter. But in this episode, he's kind of like, listen, fuck who you want. Just don't parade it around. And unfortunately, I see you and Sarah everywhere. So whether or not something's going on there, it looks like there is so optically. But that being said, I was a little surprised. And I want to know if were, were you surprised that Hearst kind of gives him tacit permission or implicit permission to screw around on Violet as long as Violet is not harmed in a social way? You know, as long as it doesn't bring embarrassment down upon her and by extension her himself, Hurst, John is kind of free to do what he wants. What did you think of Hurst taking this tack with John in this episode based on how he had been with him previously? I was really surprised that he like flipped the script on John in this scene with him because it's been all or nothing with Violet to this point in terms of William Randolph Hurst. The fact that he alluded to something with Sarah, I don't know what he was directly implying or what he directly knew, but he has had the illusions to rally, like you said, this better be after a scoop, the late nights leaving Delmonico's, like the parade of this. So I think William Randolph Hearst is more thinking that John has had the, the relationship with Sarah and that the, the late night leaving of Delmonico's is, is not for real work. That it's more about going to meet her for these illicit trysts or whatever. But the fact that he implied that you can do whatever you want as long as, you know, she's kept happy, whatever. It was surprising for me that it was like a capitulation in a way that like John has won, Sarah has won, and just just keep Violet happy. Do you think it's because Violet kind of called Hurst out on that himself? You know, so you know, Violet has, has previously said to uh, to Chief... That she doesn't want, you know, the whispers where, you know, he stepped out on his wife and fucked around with Violet's mother and Violet was begotten. So I wonder, I wonder if part of Hearst had that in his head where maybe speaking from a hypocritical standpoint or in his mind trying not to be hypocritical, the idea of, you know, have your side mistresses. God knows the lying in hospital is filled with women who have been side pieces gone awry, but just don't do it in a high profile way like you're doing with Sarah. And I think to the larger point, I don't know that the facts of whether or not something has actually happened with Sarah matter to someone like Hearst, right? Hearst has made his entire career, the New York Journal, the entire popularity of the New York Journal is built upon this idea that a sexy headline is a thousand times more important than actual facts 
backing up whatever the story is, whatever the quote unquote truth is that you're reporting. So right. the it's illusion very, of truth, the right. illusion, not illusion, illusion, right? Of, right, right, right. Of, of the, the optics are the yeah. truth, regardless of what the actual truth is. Because we can always print a correction buried on page 27 tomorrow. So the truth doesn't matter. Right. And, and well, I, I don't even know that the defamation laws were anything that you could really, <laughs> uh, you know, write home about at this point anyway. But yeah, the idea that perception is truth. So it doesn't matter what the truth is. It matters what people think it is. And, and, and people like the Hearst of the world and, uh, you know, at the journal and Pulitzer at the, at the world, I mean, they make the truth. They are the arbiters of truth at this time. That's actually a very interesting take that that conversation that where Violet threw all that shade on him last episode caused the, the change of heart with him because it really was a shift. I think they've gone out of their way the last two episodes to kind of humanize after after giving us nothing to really want to root for Violet about. I feel like they and I was skeptical about it in the last episode. But when you take the last episode and this episode together, I feel like they've actually tried to make Violet more of a victim of her circumstance than a bad woman for the sake of being a nasty woman. You know, oh, she, I have she... a completely different take on that. I feel that this is all this has done is show what a manipulative little thing she is. I had a very bad word that I was about to say. No, I think that this has shown that she knows how to pull the strings like a marionette, that she knows exactly what she's doing. She knows how to get what she wants. And she's basically pulling out all the stops to get what she wants, no matter what. So you don't think there's any truth or sincerity to the fact that everyone in high society in which she is a part of whispers behind her back that she is that a ba bastard child? Well, I think that's a very humanizing thing. Think about that. Think about that if that was your life. But she's idea... doing everything that she can to pull herself out of that station. And it's not always going to be for good. Like what she did to, to Hearst. There isn't a person alive besides her that could have said this stuff to him that she said and get away with it. That was some major shade and it was absolutely 100% manipulative. I do feel bad. I mean, a child is never the reason for the actions of the parents, right? The, the child is always the innocent, but they do bear the brunt of the choices that the parents have made. So she's in a society where an illegitimate child cannot be acknowledged the way that it can today. And maybe it's not today, but... She was completely manipulating the entire situation. I do not feel that she was humanized at all. I feel that she's actually more of, more of a demon for the way in which she's trying to improve her standing and improve. Oh yeah, her I disagree. I disagree. I think she was much. I think she was a much more one-sided character earlier in the season, where she really just seemed completely just a social climber, which I still think she is. But I feel like the last two episodes have kind of given this other side of her. If you look at it from her point of view, you can almost understand why she is the way she is and the, way, and the reason she's doing the things that she's doing. I don't know that I really begrudge her. I mean, if if I am a Hearst illegitimate daughter, I don't know that I would hold the I would not play the trump card of I don't want, you know, the way you knocked up my mother. I don't want, you know, that to continue to be my life. I want that to be fixed. I don't know. I, I find it a little bit compelling. You know, when she, I'm assuming we're going to have a different point of view on this. When when they're in the restaurant and they're ordering for job in absentia and uh, Hearst is, for whatever reason, like doing this whole on order. Uh, I mean, he's totally right about the porterhouse being rare. Holy shit. That is definitely the way to have that steak. Mm -mm -mm. But, you know, when she when she turns to her father and says, you know, you almost know John's choices as well as I do. She has a look of. I, I took it anyway, and, and the way I think the actress portrayed it, to me anyway, said more like, um, 
like this might work. Like my father and my fiance might actually find a way together. You know, because I, I think she is very clear. I think she is not ignorant of the way her father treats John and feels about him working at the Times versus the Journal and and all of the jealousy issues that he has, you know, professionally with that. And so she looks at him kind of with like a newfound, you know, maybe maybe there is a place for John in this world with me and and you know and my father. I don't know. I, I thought it was actually a really interesting take that they've done with her the last two episodes. As far as the way that she's looking at him, I think that she's looking... This this is my my feeling of manipulation coming back in. That she's looking at him going, he's doing exactly what I wanted him to do. He hasn't sat next to her like in Delmonico's this entire season. Now he's sitting next to her. So she's elevating herself through him in ways that we didn't see earlier in the season. So she's taken the... the horse by the reins here to improve her station and she's manipulating the men in her life in order to do that the conversation that john wanted to have with violet last episode when it she started saying about oh i'll finally have a name and he's just like i don't have the stones to do this right now she is absolute absolutely i'll agree with you much more three-dimensional later in the season whereas all we saw was her with mrs fucking bam bam um at the beginning of this the season but now I feel that she's very dangerous. She's sensing blood in the water when it comes to John. And from the engagement part, I would say from the engagement party is when that she started this arc of I need to act further in my own self-interest. God, I'm so, I sound so cynical. <laughs> I sound like such a hard-hearted bitch. No, I mean, <laughs> listen, I, I think, I think well, you know, we'll see how it shakes out in the final episode. I, I agree the engagement party is is an atrocious act. But I think if you look at her conversation post that with John, you know, where she talks about how hard it is, you know, for her to say that she loves someone and then the whole thing about through you, I'll finally belong. And then the conversations, you know, she has with her father about the whispers and, and you know, being this illegitimate child in high society. And then, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I think they've done some course correction with her or are trying to anyway, or at least present her as someone who has at least a reason for the point of view that she has is not just a Cruella de Vil type villain for no reason, but we've wasted enough breast on her, uh, breast. We've wasted <laughs> enough. We've wasted enough breath on Hurst and, uh, Violet. Let's talk about Laszlo because Laszlo has a, you know, again, he's, I mean, it should not come as a surprise. He is my favorite person on the show. I love him. I love everything about Laszlo. His, uncomfortable wonder and the fallout from going to the alternative Alice's alternative club with Karen and, and the idea that Karen is not only not a stranger to this world, but keeps an open mind uh, towards everything that he saw there. What's your whole take on, on Laszlo and his sexual awakening here? Specifically, I was curious if you agree that he misses out on a certain aspect of life. And this may go to the empathy conversation that we've been having through his focus on his book learning and maybe not actual practical life experience is, has missed an important aspect of living that would help inform his career as an alienist. He's kind of flip-flopped in this episode on that notion because while he's in the club, he talks about observation is the best form of instruction. And Alice deduces that he just likes to watch uh, which I found was well, hilarious. Well, well, Karen, but Karen jumps in to correct him right away without hesitancy. I like that about Karen. She just jumps in and corrects him. She says, get second to actually doing. Yeah, thing. you need to practice it, right? But then later on in the episode, when he's talking about 
Clara, he says, no, records are going to have to suffice because her world has been upended enough. So he doesn't want to go into the observation and practice with this young child. So of the notion, he's he's definitely cautious, I'll say. I'll say he's cautious in terms of where he's going to do this observation and practice. Where he's in the club, he realizes that he needs to observe. And the, the pan around the club, I feel like Laszlo is just shell-shocked. There's some BDSM, there's gay action, there's, there's just everything there. Um, so he's just definitely out of his comfort zone. But I, I thought that this was an interesting leap for him. Well, when he when he's then there back in his library and they're looking at books and, and he makes a comment to Karen that he learned more from his short time in that club than any of the books on the shelf in that library mm-hmm. could ever teach him. And then and then ask Karen, you know, she and she asks, is this personal or professional, you know, if, if that was her first time at that club kind of thing. Yeah, I think he's having this real... I, well, I think when you put this together through what he's going through at the Chrysler Institute with the stuff that's happened with Polly, I think he's having a real crisis of profession. Mm-hmm. The idea that he is – the self-doubt that he's having that he is just not qualified to do the work that he has always found himself extremely qualified to do. Um, you know, it's kind of been like a one-two punch of his eyes being opened. You know, when he says that he doesn't want to go visit Clara, that he wants to just rely on the records, I think that is straight shell shock and PTSD from what happened with Polly. I think the idea that he doesn't want to, he doesn't trust himself around children at this point. He doesn't trust his abilities around children and, and doesn't want to cause them any more harm, I think is straight PTSD from what he sees as failing Polly. Uh, so I, I think that's one side of it. But the idea that Karen is maybe a superior alienist to him because she does as well as reads is kind of eye-opening for him. I, I think I think it was a great thing for him to experience because without it, I don't know that Chrysler ever comes to the realization that maybe this is a huge aspect of life that he's just neglected. I mean, we talked about this last week, right, with the ankle and uh, mm-hmm. lactophilia that you have to go out there and do. And, and I don't know how much doing Chrysler has done. You know, if, if Mary Palmer was his great love of his life, I don't know that they ever did very, very much. It was very much one-sided. Well, yeah. I mean, his, he came around to her, you know, too late, right? He came yeah. around to realizing his feelings for her right before she was killed. Um, so, yeah. So I don't, I don't know how much practical doing Chrysler has. And life experience is a huge part if you're going to be a psychologist, if you're going to, you know, be an alienist and, and really understand the mind. Well, you have to be able to have some empathy. You know, the difference between empathy and sympathy. Sympathy is feeling bad for someone going through something. Empathy is feeling bad for someone going through something because you have experienced it. You you can identify with what they're going through. And I think this is part of his empathy journey this season. Chrysler is realizing there's a fuck ton of the world that he has never experienced and he can never empathize with because he hasn't experienced it. He can't really identify with anyone in Alice's club. He He's never experienced any of the things that those people are experiencing in that club. He Karen didn't think any does. of that was possible. Karen has. Karen And Karen says that she keeps her mind open to new experiences because of, I think she understands the idea of empathy is a huge part of being fully rounded and successful in what they do. And Karen was absolutely saved by the phone call from Sarah because Laszlo was definitely on a course there <laughs> of asking questions that were going to get him into trouble, I feel. 
So this was Chrysler maybe at his lowest and when he doesn't want to go see Clara, I, I think he's being shell-shocked and he's just, his eyes are just, uh, you know, uh, falling out of his head at everything he's witnessing and all of Karen's maybe supposed experience and the idea that maybe she's going to Vienna, you know, unless she give unless he gives her a reason to stay. Like, there's a lot personally going on with Laszlo in this episode. But then on the flip side, how excited were you to see him break down and separate into little parts Mallory Hunter and just reduce her to a puddle of lying piece of shit uh, that she is in front of Burns, who's really never gotten to see Chrysler in action. What was your take on that whole uh, that whole scene where he breaks down Mallory and her story, her quote unquote story? I feel like this was the bust out that he needed. This was the boost to his confidence. And I was I was in for this scene wholeheartedly. I was here for it. He dissected everything that she had so perfectly that she just she was staring at him like she just you're looking into my brain like how are you seeing all the things that I'm I'm hiding and it was just plain as day and he laid her bare it was just remarkable and I was like you finally got to see this because it's really been under wraps this season and when he goes full Chrysler mode I'm like yes I'm here for this yeah it was great it was great to watch I mean especially uh, when you pick it back on the scene in the in uh, the matron's kitchen where he's breaking down what had happened and, and you're really seeing him come alive in this forensic crime scene uh, mode this, this area where he's using his talents as a forensic psychologist to, to climb inside their brains and pull out everything that happened with such deadly accuracy it was so much fun to watch but really for me the joy was watching Burns's reaction yes. because this guy this guy who hates these people just because they don't play ball with him and don't do what he says in lockstep drives him crazy the idea that he was so blown away by it was so delicious to watch and even more so than to go back and see him and Hurst, you know, like two chickens, you know, two hens in the hen house gaggling about it. And even in private, they couldn't rip him apart. They had to give him credit for the way they they got to the heart, the way that Chrysler just broke it down and just picked her apart. Uh, it was so rewarding. I, I, w- I felt so satisfied on Laszlo's behalf watching that scene and watching her, even Hearst be amused at Burns's expense at how correct Chrysler was. I mean, just that's the kind, that's the kind of professional respect you always hope Laszlo gets from these people. And it's really him at his best. So I'm really glad we got this scene in this, uh, in this season. Cause I've been waiting for it. Yeah. The, um, when he was dissecting the matron's crime scene, that was like the appetizer. What we got here, this was the rare Porter house at Delmonico's. This was the entree. Yeah. So as we go into the final episode, I think the big question for Laszlo is, for me anyway, is do we see him go down this path of exploration with Karen? Does he go hand in hand with her and open himself up to having these new experiences, specifically of a physical nature? I think that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about sexual experiences and giving him an opportunity to learn about the female mind through actual interaction in a physical sense with females. I I think that's kind of what we're talking about. I'm curious to see if the last episode takes us down that road or shows us or points us us in a way where we're we're going to see him go down that path. What do you think the big question is for Laszlo? I mean, Sarah, this has really been Sarah's season, right? This has not really been Chrysler's season. This has really been Sarah's season as the focus. So as, as a final path, what do you think the big question is for Laszlo to answer before the season's over? Well, 
Karen has some big news that she drops on him, that she's been invited to this institute in Vienna, the Institute of Psychology in Vienna. They're the first medical faculty that's including their field. And she only has two weeks to decide before she has to depart. So when I hear psychology and Vienna in 1897, my mind goes to a very, very specific famous psychiatrist whose name that we still talk about today. So I'm just curious as to know what Laszlo is going to decide because he's obviously a little, still a smitten kitten with Karen and she's opening his eyes to a completely different world. He's in a position professionally where he's in an uncertain territory. So I'm worried that she's going to break up the band. Oh, she wasn't inviting him to go along. Um, I don't know. She was not. No, no. She, she very clearly says... So you're leaving then in two weeks? And she says, unless I have a reason to stay. She's not inviting him. She says to him, either I'll go unless this is a thing between you and me, and then I'll stay. She's not inviting him to go. The, I don't that think conversation she stays. Is, that, well, that's, that's the conversation, though. She's no, not no, saying, no, I know, but I... Not come with me to Vienna. The, she's saying, you know, unless you give me a reason to stay. Well, she says, unless I have a reason to stay, but then kind of like raises her eyebrows at him. She's kind of putting herself out there. The women in this show are always so much more enlightened than the guys, right? Even Chrysler, who is the most woke of the men, is still, you know, a, a complete troglodyte compared to the women when it comes to wokeness. So it's not surprising that she is willing to throw herself out there and, you know, explore this relationship at the expense of going and studying with Freud and, and you know, being in, in I mean, the birth, Vienna is the birthplace of psychology, mm -hmm. of modern psychology. And so that's a huge opportunity, especially as a woman, to, to go do that. And the fact that she is willing to put that on hold to explore this thing with Chrysler is kind of huge. So the question really is, the ball is really in Laszlo's court. And the fact that it has to be done in two weeks with one episode left, I think maybe it gives us an opportunity to see what her and what that answer is going to be, right? It's yeah, not I do. Un I think it's going to get resolved. Yeah. Yeah. It's not unlikely that, you know, it's not like she said that you, I have three months to decide, you know, two weeks kind of tells me like we're going to get an answer on that before the end of the season. So it'll be interesting to see how, you know, what choices Laszlo makes, you know, in his own personal life. Especially with what's going on in the Chrysler Institute. I, again, as, a, as my favorite on the show, I'm always kind of looking out for what his path is going to be. And so I think he is about to start a really interesting personal journey, which I think will make him overall a better alienist going forward. So it'll be interesting. I agree. So much to unravel in the next episode. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. So... I think we're basically done talking about this episode, so let's let's do some uh, some quick bets. I mean, we're about to go talk about because they're airing back to back, so we'll be talking about you know episode eight in in just a few minutes. But what's your guess uh, as far as does Libby make it out of the season alive? I mean, we, we we are left with Sarah holding a gun on her and her holding a piece of glass up against John's throat. Does Libby make it out of the season alive? Presumably, the episode has to begin with that resolution. But I'm curious to see what what comes of Libby. Do you think she do you think she gets away uh, from from John and Sarah? No. And in the end, do you think she no. makes it out alive? Uh, I I don't think she. As soon as she said, I'm like, no, no. I don't think she gets away from Sarah and John. I think Sarah's got a bead on her, and I, I I want to say that John makes it out, but I I don't. I don't know. I I don't have high hopes. I feel like with Doyle getting knocked off this episode, they're, they're out for blood. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that John makes it because Sarah's sort of had her own personal journey of, of wokeness and realizing that she wants more out of life than what she's already got. But 
I believe that Sarah is going to to capture Libby and that Libby will survive. I'm a little on the fence about John, though. I want him to survive, but it's just not looking good. Oh, he has to survive. That's a coward's way out for him, never having to have made the choice God, between Violet and he's Sarah. He's even, so, like, he's he's got glass up against his carotid artery, and you're still bashing the guy. I mean, he's supposed to be at Delmonico's. He's not supposed to be at Sarah's. But, uh, you know, no, he is ma- supposed to be at Sarah's. No, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. Go have, go put on your big boy pants and go have a real conversation. Whatever is going to happen, you should be at the Monaco's having a real conversation one way or another. Anywho, part of me feels like Libby has to die. I feel like that's like the poetic ending to the season. But part of me feels like she ends up living and Gugu actually pays her blood price. I feel like Gugu is the one who doesn't make it out of the season alive. Uh, ju- just from the way they've kind of portrayed that relationship, I think I think he's going to make the ultimate sacrifice for her in some in some way, form or fashion. So I don't know how that's going to play out. Obviously, Gugu is not there in that in that scene. But yeah, something tells me that scene resolves with no one, with everyone making out alive, and then Libby making it out in the end alive somehow, and Gugu paying the price and Gugu dying. That's my guess. I don't know. Um, I feel that if she if she dies, she can't be studied. Like I feel like that's part of the academic part of the show in terms of the alienists. I feel like she's too good a subject not to be studied. Well, Beecham didn't make out alive. Beecham got killed last season. True. Um, true. But I mean, but that I think that was Laszlo's complaint at Beecham being killed was we don't get to study him now. You've robbed science of being able to study him. So maybe he'll have better luck saving the the patient this time. What's your big question before we wrap up, before we move to History Corner? What's your big question that you hope gets resolved or answered in the season? The babies at the lying-in hospital from the maternal research wing. This whole story arc for me has just vanished into thin air, and I still have so many questions. I agree. I agree. We need to, we need some resolution with Marco, with the lying-in hospital, with Colleen, with the maternal research ward, what they're doing with the babies. We still, I mean... Libby hasn't stolen all of the babies. So what have they been doing with the other babies? What What is going on at the Ligon Hospital? What is Marco doing? Is a thing that I really wish they would revisit and not have completely dropped. Even if they revisit it in the last episode, I feel like it's not going to be satisfying in a way, given how much of the beginning part of the season was spent there. They really have just kind of abandoned that entire thread. So I, I hope we get some kind of resolution on that th- on that story thread too. Whatever is going to happen, I'm sure it is going to be a pulse-pounding final hour of television. Uh, I mean, I hope you guys come back and listen to our eighth and final episode at Mita Delmonico's. Well, maybe final. Who knows? Maybe they'll maybe they'll announce a season three of The Alienist. But uh, final for this season anyway, coming up right after this one. Uh, but now, I think we actually have a couple of items for History Corner. I think you have one item, yes? I do. I have one. Okay, so I'm going to go first because I have a couple. Okay. So the Children's Aid Society. We we hear about the Children's Aid Society this episode. That is who Mallory Hunter gives baby Clara to when she snatches her away from Libby or Elsbeth and has Elsbeth committed to uh, Blackwell's uh, Island Asylum after, you know, trying to, quote unquote, kill her. The Children's Aid Society was actually founded in 1853 by Charles Loring Brace 
and a group of social reformers at a time when orphan asylums and almshouses were the only social services available for poor and homeless children in in New York City. Children's aid operated lodging houses, fresh air programs, and industrial schools to support an estimated 30,000 poor and orphan children living in the city streets. The Children's Aid Society pioneered what became known as the Orphan Train Movement. This was essentially emigrating children from New York, orphan children from New York City all around the country to what we would now call foster families. The Children's Aid Society was a pioneer of the foster family movement, but basically, you know, putting kids on trains and, and bringing them out to Iowa, bringing them, you know, to North Carolina or wherever, moving them, moving them around the country to families that were willing to take them in. The Children's Aid Society still exists today. Uh, so, yes, formed in 1853, still going strong in 2020. So a nice hat tip to a real organization doing, you know, really great work for 150, 170 years. Sheila, what's your item? I have Black Bulls Island to talk about today. They mentioned that um, Sergeant Kelly mentions that Elizabeth Hunter was committed to Black Bulls Island for two years for trying to kill her mother. So Black Bulls Island is a real thing. It separates. It's an island that separates Queens from Manhattan. It's in the East River. It's named for an early descendant of the island. New York City purchased the island in 1828 and completed a penitentiary there in 1832, which physically isolated prisoners from the mainland. They also opened a hospital shortly thereafter. In 1839, the New York City Lunatic Asylum opened, including the Octagon Tower, which is now a residential building that has been renovated, so you can live there if you want. The hospital was mainly for the city's poor used to contain smallpox outbreaks and the city's quote-unquote incurables, which referred to people with chronic or severe conditions and disabilities. The asylum at one point held 1,700 inmates, which was twice its designated capacity. In 1872, Ward's Island, a.k.a. Randall's Island, opened as an asylum for men, making the asylum on Blackwell's Island all-female. So that jives with the storyline that we saw in tonight's episode. Blackwell's Island received national attention and not in a good way after an investigative journalist named Nellie Bly went undercover in the Women's Lunatic Asylum for 10 days in 1887. She described filthy living conditions, spoiled food, and physical abuse from caretakers. This expose pressured Blackwell's Island to make some changes and treat patients more humanely. In 1894, Blackwell Island Lunatic Asylum closed and patients were dispersed to other facilities, which also would jive with the timeline of the show because the show takes place in 1897. If this closed in 1894, she had had Clara eight or nine years ago. So this would have been towards the twilight moments of Blackwell's Island. So this all worked for me in terms of how the show used the timeline very effectively. So one last thing about this, the medical hospital on the island was moved in 1957 to Elmhurst, Queens and became known as Elmhurst Hospital Center, which was part of the epicenter of the COVID outbreak back in March in New York City and gained national and international fame. My work home for 14 years. The island later became known as Roosevelt Island in 1973, named for President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, not Theodore Roosevelt. And the octagon, last part, the octagon part of the original asylum was renovated for luxury apartments. A 500 square foot studio will run you about $3,200 a month. And a three bedroom, 1300 square foot apartment will set you back $5,600 a month. True story. I drove through Roosevelt Island uh, on a lark. I used to live in Astoria. 
which is just down the street from the access road going from the Queen's side onto Roosevelt Island, the little bridge that'll take you across there. Um, so I drove through uh, Roosevelt Island on a lark. I had never been there. It was the creepiest fucking place I have ever been in my life. There were all of these people. It looked, the island looks like a Hollywood set where it did 20 years ago. Looked like a Hollywood set where all of the buildings looked like they had fake fronts. And that if you walk through one of the doors, you would just be out in like a, like a back lot somewhere on like a movie set. And all of the people shuffling around in the streets looked like backward, like Hollywood, like background artists. It was the most bizarre, creepiest, weird place I have ever been in my entire life. And I could not get off of the island fast enough. It was a harrowing experience because it, it was, it felt immediately like I do not belong here and I needed to get the fuck off of Roosevelt Island. And all of those so. buildings have uh, landmark status, so they're protected, so they can't really be removed, but they can update facades. So maybe for all of you movie fans, anytime you see a movie that takes place in New York City, and there is a Sky Tram that gets involved in the storyline. I believe a, one of the Spider-Man movies yes. famously has Spider-Man saving the Sky Tram as it falls with the Green Goblin cutting it. The island over which the Sky Tram travels is Roosevelt Island. So just to just to give you a little marker, if you're not so familiar with New York City geography, but watch movies, uh, that island that the Sky Tram travels over is Roosevelt Island. Just so you know, when you say Nellie Bly, um, because I relate everything either to Friends or to the West Wing, I I know Nellie Bly because she was the source of an argument between uh, Jed and Abby Bartlett in one episode where uh, Jed, <laughs> Jed, Jed derides Abby for going uh, to a statue dedication for Nellie Bly. He says, basically, you know, you can really staff those things out. You don't need to go traveling, getting on the helicopter and go into a statue dedication for Nellie Bly. And Abby comes <laughs> and Abby comes out. She's all affronted. And seeing the look on her face, Jed says something basically like, you know what I did there? I minimalized the importance of Nellie Bly. And Abby's like, you don't know who she is. And he's like, of course I do. And she's like, she pioneered investigative journalism. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a great little scene. It's a great classic Jed-Abby fight. It's from the episode, uh, and it's surely to their credit, I believe, a season two episode of The West Wing. And uh, you should go take it out. Anyway, Nellie Bly, there's a West Wing tie-in. So there you go. Cool. Uh, so yeah, anytime Roosevelt Island uh, comes up in a story or Blackwell's Island, I love telling my little uh, freak out story of driving through that creepy, creepy place. Uh, my last uh, item is about Alice in the Alternative Club. Doing some research, I found that this may have been based on a real social organization called the Circle Hermaphroditos. Circle Hermaphroditos. It was formed in 1895. It was an underground social club and one of the first transgender advocacy groups. Initially based out of the upper floors from Parisi's Hall, which season one fans of the Alienist, uh, Alienist will know, Parisi's Hall was like the famed place where all of the boy hookers kind of worked out of. The uh, Circle Hermaphroditos was based out of the upper floors from there, and one of its founders, Jenny June, born Earl Lind, was one of the earliest known transgender Americans. The group was formed in order, among other things, to unite for defense against the world's bitter persecution of bisexuals. But bisexuals back then did not mean the same thing it meant now. Bisexuals back then was more for men and women who were born with both sexual organs what we called uh, her hermaphrodism for a long time, what we refer to now as transgender or non-binary gender association that was referred to as bisexual back in the 1890s. 
Anyway, it was a real uh, social club. It was an advocacy group, but also a social club where people could come and kind of be themselves and experiment and hang out and do, you know, be with their own kind and, and, and not feel judged and, and just live their lives. So that may have been the real world founding or the real world inspiration for Alice's alternative club in the episode. So pretty interesting. Uh, one little thing that I was really excited because it seemed like a great Easter egg, but I couldn't really find too much information about it is Libby goes into this little barn and Doyle follows her in right before Doyle gets his throat slit. There are playbills posted on the wall of the barn door for a play called A Wife's Secret opening June 24th. There are a couple playbills, you know, advertising this A Wife's Secret. I found there really was a play called A Wife's Secret by James Halleck Reed. It would open at the Star Theater, but not until May 25th, 1903. So unless this was like a really early off-off Broadway. I was say off-off off, off like Broadway. Six year, six in Brooklyn. Years pre-production <laughs> of, you know, workshop maybe. Maybe it was like a really early workshop of uh, James Halleck Reed's uh, Wife's Secrets. I couldn't find any other It was in play. previews. That's yeah, what it was. It was in previews. Six, six, it's, like the, <laughs> it's like Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, like in previews for six years. Um, yeah, so there was such a play, but it wouldn't actually open on Broadway until 1903. So there you go. Anyway, that brings us to the penultimate episode of The Alienist. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening, and I want to thank you so much for listening, and thank you for uh, making us one of the most listened to podcasts in the country. You know, since we've started it, we've been rocketing up Apple's charts week after week, and that's because you guys listen, and uh, thank you so much. We very much appreciate it. So we have just one more time for this season, so please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Five stars would be greatly appreciated. Five stars, it matters, on Apple or wherever you you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Bye. Meet at Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.